2010, lecture discussion number 13 on Zechariah 11, John 12, Matthew 26, Matthew 27, John 11, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, and John 13. Really quickly, I was talking to Bill, that's why I lost my uh, my uh, pad there, sermon. Bill is arguing online with these renowned theologians over the deity of Christ, and, and they will always bring up, he's absolutely right, they will always bring up Hebrews where it says Christ having been perfected, Christ uh, learned obedience, or uh, what was the other one? Oh, uh, didn't know the hour of his return. That's very common. You need to learn quickly how to refute that, how to destroy it. Frankly, Bill's right. I am deity. But you can always point out that when he says, I don't know the hour of my return, it doesn't mean he doesn't know the hour of his return. He says, only the Father knows. What that means is, is that he is in the context of, he is repeating verbatim, word for word, the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, because there's 12 steps, and one of those steps has this part to it, only the Father knows when the bridegroom returns. It has nothing to do with his omniscience. He is saying to them, just like my father has many mansions, um, that's also be, uh, Hebrew betrothal ceremony. It has nothing to do with his omniscience. He is telling them, listen, my return is on the Hebrew marriage ceremony pattern that God gave to Israel. And by the way, we have the same pattern. We have two witnesses. We do all of those. Very simple. We have a ring exchange, a price paid. What we don't have is the cup and the other elements of the Hebrew ceremony. But right in the middle of the betrothal ceremony, the bridegroom looks at the bride and what's he do? I got to go. And he leaves and prepare a place for you. Christ said that in John, word for word. They understood his betrothal language. Us Gentiles, we don't know that. And we have entire denominations, unfortunately, that don't recognize that not knowing the time of his return is strictly in the context of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. The others are in the high priest context. You have to, it starts with a high priest, ends with a high priest. Learn be obedience, having been perfected, is all inside a high priest sandwich, if you will, a high priest bookend. And so all you need to do then is find out what that means in the context of inspecting a sacrifice. It does not mean that Christ became perfected, and it does not mean that he had to learn something. That's silly, and it's just not possible uh, to reconcile that with I am, as Bill pointed out. Okay, just threw that in there because Bill got me fired up. Today, I'm adding Matthew 26, 1 through 25, and John 11 to our list, uh, and also John 13 to our list, because Matthew adds Judas's negotiation, what's called the Zechariah negotiation, Zechariah 11 negotiation. Did I mention stay for the business meeting? Okay, and the reason for the business meeting is we're going to hope, put some numbers up, and we're going to hope they're correct. And you're all going to hope with us, and that'll be the end of that business meeting. Should take two minutes. Please hang around. Okay. I added Matthew 26, 1 through 25, John 11, John 13, because Matthew 26 is where Judas negotiates the Zechariah 11 good shepherd silver wages. That's when he does it. He goes to the Pharisees, and they have the Zechariah 11 negotiation, and both sides know that. Both sides know that that's why he's there, and that's what he's doing. And they also know who's, who he represents there. Because there's only two people in the negotiation. Three, sorry. There's the uh, fired shepherds, if you will, the shepherds that God loathes, abhors. 
You have, and that's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the civil authorities. You also have the idle shepherd, or the foolish shepherd, or the wicked shepherd, or the Antichrist. And you have the good shepherd, the Christ. Those are your choices. So Judas is either the load the shepherds, and he's not, or he is the Christ, or he is the Antichrist. That's your three choices. That's going on in Zechariah 11. That's going on in Matthew 26. That's going on in Matthew 27. So that's why we got to get to that today. Uh, plus, the we're, in Matthew 26 is this great statement, uh, not just great, incredible statement. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's what Christ says about Judas. What's that say? He is condemned. That's God saying that about Judas. That's a powerful thing. That means he's not to be forgiven. It would be better that he had not been born because he could not be forgiven. How is that possible? And then, of course, Judas's statement that is just dripping with evil. Dripping with evil. And that is the rabbi is it I. Rabbi, is it I? Those elements, uh, as usual, are very complex. That's why we're doing Matthew 26 today. John 11 is the raising of Lazarus, the Mary-Martha typology, where Martha is a type of, um, of works-based salvation, and Mary, of course, is grace-based. And that uh, the only good work, by the way, there are no good works, is there, unless they are grace-based works. That's what's going on there along with the actual, true, literal event that occurred. Those are actual, true, real people that actually did real things, and God used them to teach us something. That's in John 11. But also is this wonderful, dramatic theodicy. What do I mean by dramatic theodicy? I'm going really fast, aren't I? Dramatic theodicy is when Christ, because he cannot explain to finite people, that's us, how the inner workings of God is. He has to act it out for us and play all the parts almost at once. And that's what he does. It's part of his teaching um, that he does constantly. Christ always teaches. That's a mistake, by the way, that these people make when they say he's not God. Bill and I were talking about a woman comes up that has been bleeding, grabs the tail of his talit, which is his prayer shawl, grabs the tassels of it and says... It wants to do that in order to be healed, and she grabs it, and she's immediately healed. And Christ says, what? Who touched me? What's that mean? Does he not know who touched him? Of course he knows who touched him. He's who? He's omniscient God. He knew exactly who touched him. So why does he ask who touched him? Because he's teaching. That's right. He's teaching her, and he's teaching around. He's not saying, who touched me? I don't know. He's saying, who, who touched me? Answer the question, who touched me? It'd be like me saying, who's sitting in the front row? Well, I know who's sitting in the front row, but I want you to say, who's sitting in the front row? He wanted that crowd to say, that woman touched you. For, for their sake, not for his sake. He's omniscient. That's called a dramatic theodicy when he does things like that. And he says this aloud. He says, the always hear me prayer of Christ. Christ says, God, you always hear me. Duh. Of course, they, God always hears him. He is God. They're a triune mystery. 
You don't, he doesn't need to speak aloud for God to hear himself. I mean, that's just craziness. So he does that, and he even says so, for the sake of those who are listening. That's why he speaks aloud, for the sake of those who are listening. So that's in John 11, and then the Pharisees a plot to attempt to murder Christ because Christ resurrected Lazarus. And I want you to consider that for a moment. Christ resurrected Lazarus. The Pharisees know it. The Jews know it. Everybody knows it. What's the response of the Pharisees? They plot to kill. They plot to kill the one who can resurrect people from the dead. That's just insanity on display. But think again. Death has been solved. Christ proves that he can solve death. He did it twice. Death has been solved. No more death. This man, this person that is here, can solve death. He's the solution to death. He demonstrates that. And the response of the religious leaders is to plot and kill both the one who can resurrect and the resurrected ones. Now that is convoluted. And that's our first clue that something special is hidden here. The motives of the brood of vipers, the Pharisees, must be examined very slowly, must be determined along with the totality of their plot. And we could and we should and we will today throw in John 13 because there's more Satan, Judas information, more about the money box there. Judas, with Satan inside of him, can take anything he wants, right? He's at the Passover meal. He's in Simon the leper's house. He's got Satan inside of him. What's he take with him when he leaves? The money box. Why does he do that? And that raises the the money box question. And that re-raises the obvious question from John 12. Why does Judas, now pure evil with unimaginable power, cling to this money box? The riddle of the money box is what you'll find that as as you, as you study. And I would caution you, and I said this a few weeks ago, I'd caution you to be wary of simplistic explanations when it comes to Satan and Judas. Don't any more than you would have simplistic uh, explanations when it comes to Christ, which is exactly what Bill's confronting. He's confronting people that can't understand the deity of Christ, so they make Christ sinful. They can understand sinful. They can't understand perfect humanity and perfect God. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. Perfect humanity added on to God. They can't understand that, so they make the humanity sinful. Anyway. So be careful. Be wary of these simple explanations. This is a mystery, this Satan-Judas thing. It's the mystery of the man of sin. It's Genesis 3.15, it's Daniel 2, it's Daniel 7, it's Daniel 9, it's Revelation 13, it's Revelation 17, it's Second Thessalonians. It's a mystery. And it's not going to be easy. And it's a combining, it's a combination of Judas and Satan together. Don't dismiss that. Don't ignore it. Don't pass over it. Just by himself, singularly, Judas, just by himself, is an extraordinary human figure. Just alone. If Satan never enters him, we never hear about Satan and Judas combining. We don't see Satan's influence around Judas or anywhere near Judas. Just Judas by himself, what he does by himself, taking on the Zechariah 11 prophecy, hanging himself. Is it I? Asking why don't we take that anointing oil and give it to the poor. Just that alone makes him an extraordinary figure. 
the extraordinary human figure in Scripture. Now, alone, by himself, Satan is without peer among all those created. So now we have the unification of these two heretofore unique beings together. They combine. That's great significance. And don't accept opinions from scholars who neglect the level of evil, the unequaled level of evil that is in Satan and Judith together. Because noting that level, the never-before-accomplished level of evil that was the union of Satan and Judas causes the obvious questions to come up. And so if you, you won't get the obvious questions if you don't pay attention to what's going on when those two join together. See, I say over and over and over again, never have a position that is in conflict with the deity of Christ. That is what Bill brought today. He's talking to people that have an opinion that is in conflict with the deity of Christ. The Council of Chalcedon, Constantinople, they clearly said Christ's perfect humanity was never in conflict with his deity. Never. Have no position that has a sinful humanity. That puts it in conflict with the deity of Christ. It always submitted to, always subjected to, and was never in conflict. Have you ever seen perfect humanity? Don't say your spouse. I'll worry about you. You've never seen perfect humanity. Not only is his humanity perfect, Christ, but it also could not sin, incapable of sin. That's called the impeccable position. So that is where I want you to be. If you have that, if you start there, that's rule number one. Christ is always omniscient, always omnipotent, always, always omnipresent, always God, never not God. Jesus Christ is creator God, and therefore he stands outside. Let me say this slowly. He is the creator God. And therefore... He stands outside the created order. What's the created order? Created order is space, matter, and energy, and something else. What else? Time. The created order is space, matter, energy, and time as the creator, if you will, or the inventor of space, matter, energy, and time. Jesus Christ is not subject to it. He is not inside of it. He stands outside of it, and it has no effect on him. That's Christ. Have no position that makes him subject to space, matter, energy, or time. I hear all this every day, it seems like. Well, before he was resurrected, uh, he couldn't walk through walls. Look it up. It's everywhere. No, he's God. He is the creator of space, matter, energy, and time, and not subject to it. Before he was resurrected, he had no trouble walking on water. What do you think is harder? He walked through people. What do you think is harder, walking through people or walking through walls? He is somebody that has a really good understanding of a subatomic molecular structure. I'm sorry, subatomic diameter and molecular structure. I'm reading a book by a guy that is an expert on supermolecules, just for fun. And he's very cynical and very sarcastic and very bitter very Christian, so that makes him rare. Because as you know, the best Christians are what? Sarcastic, that's right. 
those who listen along, if you read Psalm 90, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Isaiah 57, 15, it tells you. How long did you last? The record is 22 minutes. Did you make it? No, you didn't. You do not get a donut. Good luck down there. They're expecting you. <laughs> Thanks for trying. <laughs> do you think I got her with the... Uh... With the subatomic diameter, or the okay, probably did, probably did. Super molecules, maybe that guy. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ surveys all time at a glance. That's what he's doing always. He surveys all of time at a glance. This gives him quite the advantage. Duh. Have no position of Christ that is in conflict with him surveying all of time at a glance. Doing so is heresy. In addition, have no position on Satan and Judas that lowers them to the place where we fallen humans reside. Okay? We're described as sheep. Bill Fast says it best. Mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back. That's us. Have no position where you think that you are more intelligent than Satan. Now, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you that gives you power, but you also have a fallen nature. Be ready. Those who disrespect Satan, if you will, those who think that Satan is a fool, that's Jude 8 people. Those are, all, those are called dreamers. Foolish dreamers do that. They're in a confused state. That's what those words mean. They're delusional. These are those that pronounce themselves wise when they are simple fools. Michael the archangel did what? He did not rebuke Satan, Jude 9. Why not? He didn't have the authority. Satan and Judas are to be left to God, and we puny humans, again, have no authority here. Okay, we left off last Sunday our Super Bowl special sermon with uh, Pat changed the clock. Is it counting up or counting down, Pat? I'm watching it now. It's counting up. Okay, I'm screaming along. Yeah, that's Jude, that's Jude 8 and Jude 9, where Michael the archangel is in confronting Satan over the body of Moses and he does not attack him. Let God rebuke you. You are God's territory, essentially, is what he is saying to him. Understand that. That's Michael the archangel saying that. Where do we do, what do we do? I have people all the time attribute things to Satan. They're very common, what we call Flip Wilson. A theology where everybody said Satan made me do this or Satan kept me from coming to church or Satan. Satan personally isn't bothering you. He has a system that's bothering you. But personally, he's where? Babylon, Israel, that's where he likes to be. He's not omnipresent, but he did put a system that is uh, pretty intrinsic. And we fall for it every day. But understand the difference between a personal visit by Satan. You're not that special. Okay, we left off last Sunday, as I said, with our Super Bowl special sermon. Special because nobody heard it. 
not nobody. Thank you, the most holy that came. I should never disregard you. You're also here for the special Valentine's Day sermon, which is two incredible holies in a row for some of you. And we listed out John 12, and that's John 12 on the board behind me. All of those little details, there they are. The six days, the Passover, Lazarus, resurrection, Martha, Lazarus again, the table, sitting at the table, Mary with the oil, anointing him. Judas is there. It's a Simonic reference to Judas, which means I have to accumulate all the Simeons. Uh, he is de- declared to be the deliverer of Christ. Who is he going to deliver him to? Obviously a Zechariah 11 issue. Why didn't you sell it? Give it to the poor. He, he's called a thief, the money box. Christ brings up his death. His burial, the poor brought up again. You're going to have them always. You're not going to have me always. Jews were believing because of Lazarus. The chief priests were going to kill Lazarus because of that. And we have a whole bunch of saved Jews. That's the elements of John 12. We put that on the board. And and as I said last week, John 12 begins with Lazarus and ends with Lazarus. It is a Lazarus sandwich. And so it is in the context... It is in the context of Lazarus being resurrected. That's what it's all about. Not all about, but mostly about. Because he was resurrected and sitting at this table, and this is a very special table in a very special place, and something very special is going to happen there. Because Lazarus is there, Christ is going to do something with someone. And so you have to understand the, Lazar- the resurrection of Lazarus, and we did that a little bit last week. And then you've got to take the resurrection of Lazarus and compare all the other resurrections. And we listed them. Elijah's Shunammite son, Elisha's soldier that fell on top of him. That soldier had a good day. Jonah, the two witnesses, the Antichrist is resurrected. I asked, do you think Judas was resurrected then? The open graves, there's a good job too. When Christ is crucified, the graves open, they come out. What do they do? Who are they? That's a good, huh? They're the saints. What saints? Bunch of guys buried in graves. Yeah, who could it be? You know, you're rattling off names. You know, the first thing I want to know is who are these people that were resurrected? Were they people that died that day or were they people that had died previously? And they were people that died previously. Christ had a busy morning, didn't he? Afternoon, whatever. He's finding not just Lazarus eventually. He's good at it. He knows where the dead are. He knows where the bodies are. He knows how to put it all back together and how to make it work. He defeats death. That's an important thing to remember. That's the context of what's going on in John 12. So we did that, and then we went to the dependence of our salvation upon the body resurrection of Christ. That is a significant doctrine in Scripture, that we are dependent on the truth of his body resurrection um, and then we finished up with the testimony of Lazarus, where I, I asked you, what did he see? But more specifically, when he was dead, who did he see? And when he came back, what his witness was, his great testimony, what he saw while he was dead, and what the people there asked him. They were very much curious because he was from essentially a small town. He knew everybody in it. They all knew him. When he came back, he had information. Lots of information. He was greeted, he was escorted, and he knew. He knew who, what? Who was saved. How they were doing. See, I always thought that they would ask questions too. 
How my kids doing? Are they okay? Lance, do you see my boy? See my daughter? How's my wife doing? You know, would they ask those questions of him? He would certainly, when he came back, be answering those questions, wouldn't he? So his testimony was incredible. And Jews were coming from everywhere to see him. So now for today, the special Valentine's Day sermon. We, uh, we should run around a bit and gather pieces. So let's do that. Just like Daniel 2 plus Daniel 7 plus Revelation 13 plus Revelation 17 gives you the total picture of the uh, prophecies of the Antichrist and the Gentile kingdoms or empires, we've got to add John 12, John 11, John 13, Matthew 26, and Mark 14. And I, I keep wanting to make sure that you know, prepare yourself for that. That's the way the Bible is written. That's how it works. That's what he does. God makes us gather. We have to collect his word, make a big pile, sort it all out. He wants us to go through the Bible and collect the pieces so that you have all the pieces. So when you're reading the Bible, always ask yourself, where's the Old Testament complement to this? What other pieces fit with this? And then always ask this question, how come he didn't put all the pieces in one place where it's really easy for me to find them? Because he doesn't. Is it a good idea for him to do that? Why doesn't he make it easy? I get that all the time. Because he doesn't like it to be easy. Figure out why he doesn't like it to be easy. You know, again, I think of my dad. My dad did his best to make his everything as hard for me as he could. I wanted to go out with my friends and... and uh, he would always, as you've heard me say, leave the car out of gas. I had to go get gas. I'd come to him. I'd say, you got any money for gas? No, but I got these bottles. You can redeem the bottles. And now I've got to gather the bottles. I don't even, he would siphon the gas out of the car so that I couldn't even get out of the driveway. I, he had it so worked out that it would. he knew how to pour gasoline down a carburetor. 67 Mustang. Do you realize how valuable that car was? And he didn't like me driving it, but he wouldn't tell me no. But he just made it really tough. Tires were always out of air. He'd blame it on the neighborhood kids. Boy, those kids. I should stay up some night and try to catch them. That's what he'd tell me. So I was always upset. Car was out of gas. I had to take bottles. By the time I got all that done, everybody else was gone. I couldn't find him, so what did I do? I came home and I read Louis L'Amour novels. That was his plan for me. I, I really see that, by the way, in Scripture. He makes us collect it all. It's not easy. It takes a lot of time. Things that are worth it do. This is the way he does things. If you don't believe me, go see Exodus 16. What's Exodus 16 about? Did he put the man, did they just sit there and go, because he could have. He could have dropped the manna in their mouth. What did he make them do? Go out and pick it up. Bend over, pick it up, gather it. Okay? And then, then you had to get a double portion because he took Sundays off. Actually, he took Saturdays off. I shouldn't confuse you. Okay? That's the way he does things. And you are either going to gather the bread of life or not. You, you don't just get to sit in your house 
and wait for it to be given to you cooked with gravy on it. You don't. You have to go get it. That's how he wants you to respond. So you're either going to do that or you're not going to do it. And you'll notice the congregants of Israel, when you read Exodus 16, they didn't want to gather the manna. They didn't want manna. What did they want instead? They didn't want the bread of life. Who is the bread of life, by the way, that descends from heaven that's a gift from God? Who is that? That's Christ. They didn't want Christ. They wanted quail instead, didn't they? They wanted quail, and quail's going to do what to you? It's going to kill you. Read the story. And I'm going to add to it. They wanted fables. They wanted their own desires. They wanted to hear stories from the pastors. They wanted their ears itched. They wanted candy-coated candy, 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 and candy. Candy, candy, coated candy, candy. And yes, I added 2 Timothy 4 to Exodus 16. I think appropriately so. Anyway, Matthew 26, 1 through 18. Here we go. I hope this will amaze you today, as I remember when it amazed me. So I hope it amazes you. Because if it does amaze you, then you're weird like me. And that's good for me. Hey, 26.1. Now it came to pass, Matthew 26.1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days in the Passover over, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the... <coughs> excuse me. And the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany, okay, now again, Bethany, follow your list. This We're adding to this list that's from John 12. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Let me flip this thing over. Oops. Because that's a new thing, isn't it? Simon the leper. Again, I have a Simeon prophecy. Simeon the leper. So I have to start gathering Simeons. Put them all together. Figure out what it means. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. John identifies the leader of this, and who is the leader? Judas is. But when Jesus was aware of it, what, well, she's just not aware? Oh, wow, wonder what's going on over there. Is that how you... Read that. Have no position that says that he is subject to time, subject to creation, subject to matter, subject to energy. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? What's that? That's a question. Who's asking it? Omniscient God. Does he know the answer? Yes. Why is he asking it? For us. That's right. For our sake. Why do they trouble the woman? 
Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. A good work is anointing him. So you want to know what a good work is? Anointing Christ for his death. That's a good work. For you you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's an, Those are important distinctions between John. It was poured on his head. The disciples asked, why this waste? Judas asked, why this waste? Don't waste it. She has done a good work. The whole world will know it. It's a memorial to her. Now we go on to Judas's uh, Zechariah 11 negotiation. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? That is why, that's the same word, that is why he is Judas the deliverer and not Judas the betrayer. Because how do you betray an omniscient God? You don't. He knows what you're doing. He's outside of time. It's pretty hard to sneak up on him. He's able to hear you coming. You have a little bell around your neck. He has good hearing. That is why when you call him the betrayer, you imply that Christ is not what? Omniscient, outside of time. Be careful. Someone who doesn't know might be listening. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? He's asking them. What's he want? He wants the Zechariah 11 money. That's what he wants. Why does he want it? And they counted out to him the Zechariah 11 money. That's what they did. So that from that time he sought opportunity to deliver him. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is great. Go into the city, Christ says, go into the city to a certain man. What's the obvious question? Who's this guy? And say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So there's a certain man. Did the apostles know who the certain man was? They didn't know. They're going to find him. He's going to tell them how to find him because there's a sign. What's the obvious question? When did Christ set this up? Who is this certain man? How come nobody knows about it? Now I'm going to skip ahead to 24 and 25. I'll go to 23. They're eating the they're eating the Passover. He tells them that somebody's going to deliver them. They all ask, "Lord, is it I?" He answered and said, "He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will deliver me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I'm sorry, is delivered. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born." Then Judas, who was delivering him, answered and said, "Rabbi, is it I?" That's a very important thing. He's, everyone said to him, Lord, is it I? Who goes last? Judas does. Lord, is it I? And Christ said, you have said it. Okay? Let me make the list for you. Simeon the leopard, it was poured on his head this time instead of just the feet. So now you find out, adding them together, head and feet, the oil, waste. Why this waste? 
It's described by Judas as waste. She has done a good work. Okay? The whole world is going to know about this. That's extraordinary. That takes omniscience, by the way, to figure this out. It's going to be a memorial. She is going to be memorialized for this. And she has been. Then we have the Judas negotiation. Judas is negotiating for the Zechariah 11 money. And there's a certain man. We've got to figure out who he is. A certain man that shows up. And woe to the one who delivers him. It would be better than if he had not been born. Now, that's a powerful statement coming from God. Don't underestimate it. And I'm going to put the last one right here. Rabbi, is it I? Because that makes no sense. Now, Mark 14. Fourteen. Am I going to use any of that? No, I'm going to skip it. Let's go to John 13 so I don't leave anything back. Remember, Mark 14 is on your assignment, but I'm going to let it go by. John 13. So we'll start at 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled. What troubles God? What things did he say? He was talking about in 18 and 19 a a prophecy um, that Psalm 41, a prophecy that describes the one who will come against him. It is an antichrist prophecy. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will deliver me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. They didn't figure, they didn't know who it was, who could do this. Now he was leaning on, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, and most believe that's John, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to the one who was laying on Christ. He wanted him to ask Christ, who it was that was going to betray him, because Simon Peter thought what? Deliver him, sorry. Who, who was going to be a, a double agent, so to speak? Who was the one that was evil? What did Simon Peter think? What was he going to do? If he knew. He's going to what? He's going to kill him. That's right, that's Simon. He's going to hunt him down and kill him. There ain't no delivering going on here, no... No sneakiness. I'm just going to take you out, baby. As soon as Christ identifies who it is, dead. Have a nice day. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? John asked, who is it? Now, remember, John's writing this. John wrote Revelation. John doesn't know who it is when he asked that. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of, I'm sorry, of Simeon. There's another Simeonic reference. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew. For what reason he said this to him? For some thought, because Judas 
had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Judas took the money box with him. Why would he do that? That's very important. So we'll add to our risk. Jesus is troubled. Obvious question. How does God get troubled? What's he troubled over? Okay. Lord, who is it? Who is it? They don't know. They want to know. Especially Peter, I believe. There's a, after the piece of bread, Satan enters. Why did Satan wait until the piece of bread? What does the piece of bread have to do with any of this? Then he says, do quickly. What? That makes no sense. By the way, if God says you to do something, how much choice you got? It's almost a command. Do it quickly. What's the obvious question? Think about that. No one knew. That doesn't surprise me. These guys have a way of not seeing things very often. Some thought, because Judas had the money box, that he was given money to the poor, in which case it refers back to what? It refers back to the oil discussion. So some thought, okay, Christ is conceding that I'm not going to sell the oil, but you go take the money box and spend it on the poor. That's what they thought. And... And then we have this after the after he received the bread, then he takes off with Satan inside of him, and it's immediate. And that is a puzzle, okay? <clears throat> That's almost three quarters of all of all of it. We got more from John thirteen, more from John eleven that remains, but we've got a good dent. We got a double erase board list. And we've got to kind of go back and forth now between the two and try to figure this out. How does this all work? So let's circle a few of them here. Judas's negotiation, that's an important piece in all of this. Wow, off it goes. Woe, better that you not be born is an important piece. Rabbi, is it I an important piece? So let's grab that from Matthew 26, from, Matthew, or from John. Jesus troubled. Okay, Lord, who is it? Because they all they after the piece of bread, um, Satan enters, and then do quickly, and then went immediately. So there's where we are. Those are the ones that fit together cleanly uh, with respect to where we are today. Now, there are all kinds of questions to resolve here, and some have asked for centuries these questions, and they have not satisfactorily found answers. And I, I read them many, many times, hoping that I would find somebody who resolved it, but I found mostly people who did not, and it's because they always make the same mistake. They do not start in the right place. They put Christ inside of time and subject to matter, energy, and, and his own creation, which isn't the case. Space. If you don't, if you do what, if you do it right, you're going to find it. I make no promises here to end these debates. I don't, but I believe that you're going to get on the correct path. 
if you start with Jesus Christ not subject to his created order, not subject to space, matter, energy, and time. I can't repeat that enough. Start with Jesus Christ as the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God in the flesh. If you do that, then most of these difficult questions that people just languish over and stun themselves with, solve themselves. Okay, for example, why would Judas ask Christ this obvious question? Rabbi, is it I? Why would Judas ask that? Does Judas know? Judas knows it's him, right? Judas knows that it's him, and he also knows what else? That Christ knows. Who doesn't know? The rest of them there. No one knew, but Judas knew, and Christ knew, right? Judas knows that Christ knows, and Christ knows that Judas knows that Christ knows. So who doesn't know? The disciples, Simon the leper, Lazarus. No one at the table knew. They didn't know who Judas really was, and they didn't know, frankly, who Christ really was. They had some ideas, they had some clues, but they had not put it together. The disciples were witnessing Genesis 3.15 and Zechariah 11, and they had no clue. They were oblivious to what Christ and Judas were doing at this table. Judas knew why he was at the table. Christ knew why Judas was at the table. Christ knew that Judas knew why Judas was at the table. No one else knew. So why does Judas ask the question? Judas knows, Christ knows. Why does he ask the question? Aloud. Same reason that Christ asked question. Aloud. Is it for Christ? No, Christ can read his mind. Does he know Christ can read his mind? I submit that he does. Why does he ask the question? Has nothing to do with him. Has nothing to do with Christ. It has everything to do with the people at the table, right? Clearly, he's seeing a couple of things. He doesn't know what Christ is going to do, but he knows that Christ knows. So clearly, he's going to see if Christ will expose, if he will reveal who Judas really is to the disciples. If he will say... Because he knows Peter is wanting to find out. He's trying to find out. Can Peter kill him? No hope. Who's hanging around? Satan's hanging around. He goes in right after the piece of bread. You ain't killing Judas. You got to be kidding. He's not afraid of Peter or anybody else. Except who? Christ. God. Does he know it's God yet? That's a big discussion that we've had many times with regard to Judas and Satan. He's clearly going to see if Christ will expose, if he will reveal who he really is. This is an Elisha, 2 Kings 6.17 moment. Remember where Elisha opens the eyes of his servant to the supernatural realm that is around him. Judas is wondering whether or not Christ is going to do that. Find the Old Testament compliment, right? Would Jesus Christ open the eyes of his disciples? What would be a really cool thing for him to do? Who's at the, who's at the meal? Satan is at the meal. Why doesn't Christ go, look, there's Satan. Is he going to do that? Judas asks him, is it I? Are you going to reveal it? Would Jesus Christ open the eyes of his disciples, show them Satan, tell them the specifics of what Judas and Satan are going to do? Instead, he responds to John's who is it question 
by doing something that is absolutely stunning. It's stunning. It's extraordinary. What's he do? What's it say he does? He gives him a piece of bread. He doesn't say it's Judas and there's Satan. Oh, look, a bunch of demons. Don't worry, I'm God. Let me show you. They're gone now. Be gone. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives Judas the piece of bread. Let me write that down. The piece of bread. Not a piece of bread. You probably thought, I hope you didn't, but you probably did. Most do that he gives a piece of bread to Judas. No, he doesn't. He gives the piece of bread. It's an extraordinary thing. It's incredible. You would expect it, wouldn't you? Because this is God and Judas slash Satan. So what Christ does is amazing. Right after Christ is troubled, after Christ announces that one of them will deliver him to the Pharisees, after John asks, Lord, who is it? After Judas himself asks, Rabbi, is it I? Christ gives Judas the first piece of bread. And that is amazing, stunning. No wonder the disciples never suspected that it was Judas. No wonder they never really knew who Judas was. Never knew who Judas really was. Judas got the first piece of bread. Because, you see, what happens at a Passover meal is the host of the meal. This is Jesus Christ is hosting the meal. He selects who's at the table. What else does he select? Where they sit. There's a place of honor. A place of great honor. And the person who sits at that place of great honor always gets what? The first piece of bread. Who's sitting in that place of great honor? Judas is. Why is Judas sitting in the place of great honor? How did the seating get done? Lazarus is at the table. Simon the leper is at the table. Peter, John, all the apostles are at the table. But the host of the table gives the first piece of bread to the one that is being honored. And that's Judas. The first piece of bread is the piece of honor. It's a special symbol of something. What's it a special symbol of? It is a special symbol of great love. It is a special symbol of extraordinary deep friendship. Judas is sitting at the table in the place of honor. He gets the first piece of bread, which is a symbolic way of saying, I love this person deeply. He is a great, great friend. And every apostle there would have said, this is the apostle that is loved the most and is the closest to Christ. I ask you, is he the closest to Christ? Does he know more about Christ than all the rest of them put together? Yes, he does. And Christ knows that, and he knows that Christ knows that. The rest of them are oblivious, not Judas. He's in the seat of honor. Is anyone going to suspect that the one who gets the piece of bread, the one who is greatly loved, who is identified as the great friend, the deepest friend, that is the evil one. Would anybody suspect that at that table? None did. The apostle who was seated in the place 
of honor was Judas. And that makes perfect sense to me because Judas is the what? He is the seed of the serpent, Revelation 17, 8, Genesis 3, 15. He's the most powerful apostle. He's the leader of the apostles. He's Judas. Do not assume otherwise when you read these stories. Judas, the most cunning, the most wicked, the idle shepherd of Zechariah 11. Satan enters him at the table after he is honored, after Christ expresses his love, after Christ states without equivocation, clearly and loudly and plainly, Jesus says to all of the table, Judas is my greatest friend. Judas gets the first piece of bread. Judas is in the place of honor. And that, by the way, explains Matthew 26, 48 through 50. Because when he sees Judas at Gethsemane, what's, what does he say? Friend. I'd expect that. You are the great friend. Why did you, uh, what's this kiss got to do with it? That's, I know you're going to do that, but it's an interesting little thing you've conjured up here. They are operating at a different level. We're playing tiddlywinks and, and I don't know what we're playing, but we're playing some little silly, simple game. They're playing ultra-dimensional chess, except it isn't fair. One of them is what? God. Greetings, Rabbi. Jesus says, and greets him with a kiss, and Jesus says to Judas, friend, why have you come? You didn't have to come. Why did you come? Communication between Christ and Judas is, are at a much more complex level than anyone else, with the exception of Satan, Matthew 4. Now, that helps explain the do quickly, because that doesn't make any sense, does it? Does that make sense to you? doesn't make any sense, and the immediately makes no sense. Why would Satan and Judas comply? What's in it for them? Why would they move fast? Christ says, do it quickly. What would be the obvious thing? Have teenage children. Quick! Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Judas just say, I'm doing nothing quick. You want me to go fast or go slow, baby? But he doesn't. He complies. It makes no sense why Judas and Satan would do this. Why would Judas say, well, just say, I've got to grab that money box. Satan is inside of him. Why is Satan, why is Judas doing that? Judas intends, as you know, he's not going to give any money to the poor. He wants the poor to die. He hates the poor. You should be able to figure out now, because you know that he's in the place of honor. He got the first piece of bread. He is told that he is the most loved. He is the greatest friend of everyone there. He is set up for that. And immediately after that, that's the signal for Satan when Judas gets it. Does Judas know he's going to get it? Knew it beforehand, didn't he? That's the signal. And then they comply with this. They go quickly. And you should be able to figure... I thought Jane was pointing, saying, I've got it. No, trying to keep me alive. You should be able to figure out why they moved so fast. You shouldn't need me for that. You shouldn't need me for the piece of bread and why he gave it to him. You shouldn't need me for why Satan jumps into him right after he gets that piece of bread. You shouldn't get, need me for, Rabbi, is it I? You should be able to work that all together. And if you can't, what's that mean? See you next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.
Well, I'm sorry, it's better if I didn't teach 17.